Well, it's a three-week series we're looking at. This is us. Um, and we're looking at the biblical idea that we, right, we are a Christ-centered family, right? The local church is a Christ-centered family. And we're bookending this series. This, this was just beautiful the way this rolled out. We're bookending this whole series. We're starting it on Mother's Day, right, celebrating moms who gave birth to every member of every family on the face of the earth. I'm fairly certain of that fact. Right? So we're celebrating, bookending it, that we're going to start celebrating mom. And then we're going to end it on Pentecost Sunday, which is right, the birth of the church, family of Christ. Right? So that was pretty amazing, I thought. It was just like, wow. Was, <laughs> whew. Which means, biblically speaking, behold your brothers and sisters. Look around these. This is, this is your family. This is your forever family. Right? You got biological family? This is your forever family. This gets added to your biology, biological family, right? Your forever family. The people around you, they're your spiritual family. They're just like your biological family. You haven't chosen them for yourselves, but they have been chosen for you, right? And you are therefore inseparably bound to them, right? You have no options. The Bible's fairly clear. You need to be a part of a church family, a local church. Now, if you didn't grow up in an old-school Protestant church like I did back in the hills of Indiana, they spoke strangely about each other. You know, I recognized fairly early I had a grandfather who was a Nazarene pastor. My great-grandfather was a Nazarene pastor. My grandmothers were, could have been Nazarene pastors. I mean, so these were the, the, the older people I hung out with and all of their people. And you could tell when they were talking to somebody, some folks they would call Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. Right? And there were a whole lot of Mr. and Mrs. So-and-sos. But then they'd, their voice would change, right? Just a little bit. Like you could hear them talking on the phone or you could hear them talking to somebody in the yard or something. And this person wasn't a Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. It was a brother or sister so-and-so. And just the way they said the word, it was like, I, and I knew early on, like, they're kind of special, right? They're more special than Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. Like, my granddad calls that guy his brother, and I know he's not his brother. Like, I knew that at that point, and I knew that lady wasn't his sister either. But he called them brother and sister. Don't remember all their last names. But I remember that that was very, very strange. And, and I know that people outside the church, when they hear this, they think that, 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 that's just, just a little bit, just a little bit um, odd. Um, but the fact of the matter is, come to find out that this actually reflects the way God wanted us to treat each other, the way Jesus wanted us to treat one another, right? Um, like we treat and like we talk to our biological brothers and sisters, our, our, our moms and dads. Um, and he even goes a step further, right? He even asks for a little bit higher allegiance than to our biological family, to our spiritual family. And that, that kind of shocks people, right? And, and then you hear whole bunch of brothers and sisters and you're like wow that's something's going on here way bigger than just my biological brothers and sisters um and on the cross jesus reiterated this new idea of family he says this in john 19 when jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby he said to her woman here is your son or behold your son and to the disciple here is your mother or behold your mother and from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So this is when the New Testament writers, when they wanted to address individuals or entire congregations based on this idea that Jesus talked quite a bit about, right, the family of God, um, if they wanted to address people in a congregation or entire congregations, they would call them brothers and sisters, 
right? In, in 1 Peter chapter 5, um, he wants to commend Silvanus, I think his name was, um, and he calls him his faithful brother, right? And then Paul, he's writing a letter to the church at Rome, and they, he wants the church at Rome to welcome somebody, a, a Phoebe, right? And he wants to, them to welcome and, and, and help her, right? And he calls her, what, his sister, and again, outside the church, this, this is a little odd, and it, it's, right, everyone's heard the terms. It's nothing outrageously different. We all have brothers and sisters. Well, we, we know what brothers and sisters are. Um, but to call people who aren't your brother and sister brother and sister is just a little bit different, a little bit different. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, it says, I commend you to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church at St. Crea. And as we're going to see, Paul has lots to say about Phoebe, but he really doesn't have to say anything, but I commend to you Sister Phoebe, right? That was, that was, the, that was like a code word, right? Everybody understood that code word. It's kind of like a, like a secret handshake, right, that spoke of membership or a secret knock, right, that got you into places with no questions asked. Because we've got to remember, this was a time of re- very, very real persecution, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, Jews who weren't Christians, off and on in the Roman Empire, they, all three groups were persecuted. They, they would be asked to leave, and they had to give up their homes and go move to another city. Jews were kicked out of Rome at one point, and that'll play into our story next week, actually. But off and on again over the years, persona non grata, boy, that was, that was for Jews, Christians, or Jewish Christians. They... The emperors did not like them at all. So as far as we know, Phoebe was most likely the carrier of Paul's letter to the church of Rome that he wrote from Corinth. I'm going to show you a map real quick here. Um, Corinth sits on a little neck of land. Right? The, the peninsula of Greece comes down, uh, and then there's the, the Peloponnese, uh, this peninsula kind of on the end, and it's just connected by this little strip of land, and Corinth sits right on that little strip of land. And on either side of Corinth... You have a port city, and it's really the port cities for Corinth, and one of them is Sincrea on the east side, and there's another one on the west side. I don't remember the name of it. doesn't matter. Um, but Paul, thinking that he was going to be traveling to Rome soon, um, uses his letter not only to lay out some correct orthodox beliefs to address some situations that were happening at the church in Rome, um, but he also sent the letter to ensure that his sister-in-arms I'm going to use that phrase several times. I want you to remember that, like sister in arms. You all know what that means, right? Somebody that you've gone to battle with, a brother in arms or a sister in arms. And and Paul considers um, Phoebe to be his sister in arms. And he wants to make sure, and he's going to use this letter to make sure that she's well received and taken care of as she travels for business because we scholars figure out she's probably fairly well off. Um, she has business. Some people think there's a lawsuit that she's dealing with in Rome. Um, whatever the matter, she is a Gentile from Corinth, the area around Corinth, and she's traveling to Rome on business, and she's carrying Paul's letter for him, written from Corinth to the church at Rome he's going to be visiting. He says this in verse 2. Now he says a little bit about her. I asked her, you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help that she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So that's a sister-in-arms or a brother-in-arms, the two of them, right? They've come to each other's aid at a time when to be a Christian could cost you. cost you your job. It could cost you your life, right? Your neighbors turn you in. You're gonna, your life's going to be wrecked 
in a lot of the cities, again, off and on, these persecutions kind of came, came and go, right? So again, with con artists and, and just the difficulty, anti-Semitism and, and all that, as wealthy as she might have been, Phoebe needed help. She didn't need people, excuse me, she needed people she could trust, like trust like family. That's what she needed, right? She didn't need money. She didn't need anything that money could buy. Another wealthy business person in Rome wasn't going to do the trick. It simply wasn't safe for her, right? She needed some brothers and sisters in arms, some people who understood that she was a Christian and understood what it meant to be persecuted in a big city of Rome, right? That's the help. She, she, she needed a, a, a place to go for the night and Brothers and Sisters in Arms. I don't know if there was a movie a while back. Many of you have heard of it. It was uh, it's called uh, Brother, Band of Brothers. And the idea in this movie is these soldiers, right, in battle, they go through such intense, intense life and death situations that they, they build a bond. It's Brothers in Arms, right, a band of brothers. And it, and it, it creates this bond actually that when these soldiers men and women when they go home a lot of them have marital problems because the marriage doesn't have that intensity of life and death that battle had right so these soldiers come home and they have a really hard time integrating back into a normal day you know where people aren't shooting you and trying to kill you so they have they have difficulties huge difficulties um, battles created bonds deeper even than blood. Right? These, these soldiers, again, men and women, for the rest of their lives, right? the, these are people that are as close as family, maybe closer than family. Phoebe needed people who knew what persecution meant. So this morning, we're going to look at two other letters that Paul wrote to better understand this idea of brothers and sisters in Christ. I think we, we've got an idea, but I don't think we've got the full idea that Paul was driving at because it's a lot deeper and a lot more intense, and it's life and death like your brothers and sisters, right? These are your brothers and sisters in arms. So I'm going to look at in, in Ephesians chapter 2, and in fact, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul points out that the Christian Jews and the, the Gentile Christians... The Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, they were, in fact, brothers in arms, right? They were both under attack. And, and we, in, our, in our minds, as we read through the New Testament, we tend to think of the Gentiles as the ones who are the outs, and the Jews are the ones that are the in. Paul says something radically different here. This is incredible. Um, starting in chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. He's talking to Gentile Christians. Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. See, even in their bitterest days, the Jews never doubted that the Messiah would come, so they always had hope. But the Gentiles, they had no hope, right? This life was all there was when this life was over. In fact, they built whole philosophies about you better enjoy this life because this is all there is to it, right? So the Greeks, Gentiles, I should say, they didn't have any hope. Right? The Jews had hope. Gentiles didn't have hope. Essentially, Paul tells the Gentile believers that before Jesus, they were literally orphans without any hope in the world. 
But with Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord, but listen to this, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentile believers are no longer orphans because of Christ. And why? For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, the law. Right? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. I want to read to you a, a different translation here of that last by setting aside in his flesh the law. Kind of convoluted there. I'm, I'm going to read this from the message version. It says this. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Here's Paul's point. The law code of Moses not only made Gentiles orphans, but the law code also made the Jews orphans. Everybody was far from God. We were all Gentiles and Jews alike. Everybody was an orphan. Everybody was without hope. Verse 17 and 18, he came and he preached peace to you who are far away, you Gentile Christians, but listen carefully, peace to those who are near. Christ came to us Jews also, right? For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, right? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. We are a family made up of orphans. I mean, I need you to look around just a little bit right now, right? The, the, the tendency is we look around and, and we see some people who look like orphans and some people who don't. Right? We, we recognize people who are just coming fresh into the church and they've got issues. Boy, they've got issues. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. And we kind of in the church, we consider them the orphans, but we're not the orphans, right? We're, the, we're established. And then people try to come in and they feel very out of place. They feel like orphans sometimes when they come and visit a church for the first time because people are all looking at them. Who's going to sit next to them? Right? We, this, this happens not all the time, but it's something that we have to be just so, so, so aware of. Right? We are a family made up of orphans. In fact, Israel used the metaphor of an orphan to describe its own identity. In Exodus chapter 4, a fatherless Israel is adopted by God and becomes his what? His firstborn son. In Ezekiel chapter 16, Israel is described as an infant abandoned to die by its parents. God, however, has mercy and adopts Israel into his family, right? They identify as orphans. And Jesus is no different than his heavenly father. John 14 says this. He's talking to his disciples before he's going to be crucified. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And Paul's saying the same thing to the Ephesians and to us. We're all orphans. And God wants to adopt us all. I mean, that is amazing news. We are all orphans. We're all in this together. God wants to adopt all of us together, right? I th the, the problem, again, I kind of got into this a little bit, but I, I think we have what I would call a Brady Bunch idea of what it means to be a biblical brother and sister. Um, 
only one of us is an orphan, right? Somebody new, somebody different shows up, and our first concern is, do we have to share our toys, right? I, I know this in a very, very, very real, real way. We adopted um, our second daughter, Brittany. Um, Amanda was eight years old at the time, and when we adopted Brittany, she was just about a couple weeks short of four years old. Amanda had had it. She had it made, right? She was the only child. She called the shots. <laughs> she had both of us wrapped around her finger. And then Brittany shows up. And understand that Amanda had everything in her own bedroom. I mean, everything that wasn't mine or Diane's was Amanda's. And then a little girl, Brittany, shows up with two plastic trash bags. That's all she owns in the world. And you can imagine, over the next several years, <laughs> Brittany seeing Amanda and everything that Amanda has, Brittany would visit Amanda's room when Amanda wasn't there and <laughs> borrow things. I mean, but you understand, right? Brittany arrived with two black plastic trash bags. Everything in those trash bags was trash, too. I mean, she had cassette tapes of Cops, the TV show, four years old. And we were told that those were her property and we could not touch them. It was odd. It was, it was truly, truly odd. And at one point, Amanda, in all seriousness, I think 10, 11, 12 years old, I don't remember, take her back. It's kind of funny, but, but not. I mean, she was adamant. Take her back. We brought her in. She was an orphan. This isn't working out. Send her away. And I wonder, as Christians, do we act more like stepbrothers and stepsisters, you know, like the Brady Bunch? You ever watch the Brady Bunch? The three sisters were always fighting the three brothers who got to have, right? Somebody sent me a great internet, a man standing next to a step ladder, step ladder and he says, I, I never knew my real ladder. <laughs> Ephesians 2 says that we're all orphans with nothing but black trash bags carrying around everything that we hold dear and everything that we hold dear in those black trash bags are trash. Right? That's what Paul is trying to tell the Gentiles. You have nothing but trash in those bags that you're carrying around, and we got nothing but trash in our bags that we're carrying around, and neither one of us has a home. Both of us are vagabonds, ragamuffins, far from God. And then from Paul's letter to the Galatians, the second thing to keep in mind is brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only were we all orphans, but there's a second huge piece of information that we need to understand if we are truly to call ourselves biblical brothers and sisters. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 24, 23 and 24, it says this. Before the coming of faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Jesus was the faith that was to come, right? So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now, the problem in the Galatian church, this kind of give you a little bit of background because it's going to make a whole lot more sense as we move forward. 
The problem in the Galatian church is there were some Jewish Christians, they were called Judaizers, right? They were Jewish Christians um, who told the new Gentile Christians that they also needed to follow the law of Moses to be a Christian, right? You had to do both, the law and faith. But Paul insists that that cannot be. In a rather convoluted argument, he basically says that the legalities of the law, which came second, right, with Moses, cannot supersede the legalities of the promise that went to Abraham. And in Paul's opinion, that promise made to Abraham 430 years, but that, that's the years in slavery, not years between Moses and Abraham. I mean, but the promise to Abraham, Paul considers a contract, and that is a contract that is not nullified simply because another contract, the law, under Moses is created. This one is still in force. So he's telling the, gen, the, the believers here in Galatia, you don't have to follow this, right? Follow the first law. And that law was a promise. It was, it was based on faith, not on your obedience. Because your obedience is getting you nowhere, right? If the law could have made you righteous, it would have done so by now. But it clearly doesn't have that power. So the law which came second cannot replace the promise which came first. Gentiles, claim the promise. Don't hang on the law. That came second. Hang on to that first promise, that first contract, right? So why the law then, right? Was it an anti-promise? What, what was the point of the law? If the whole idea is for us to follow the promise to Abraham, which is based on faith, what, what, what was the deal with the law? It was basically the law was the mean disciplinarian at the orphanage, right? This, this is incredible. It turns out the law wasn't some kind of tutor, right? For the longest time, we've interpreted these, these words as tutors, like, like the law was the teacher, like this nice teacher that would... But really, the word Paul is using is it's the person who is making sure that the kid gets to school, making sure that the kid does his homework, making sure the kid... He's the disciplinarian, not the tutor, He's the mean disciplinarian, and again, they're all orphans, so he's the mean disciplinarian at the orphan that everybody hates. That's what Paul is saying. That's the law, but it had a purpose, right? The purpose of the law was to hold you all together until the promise finally arrived, right? He's basically saying, look, follow this bunch of laws so that you don't go off and do something crazy while you're waiting for the promise. The law will keep you in line, sort of. It's going to be, again, that mean disciplinarian person who's just going to keep you in line. You're not going to love it. Definitely not going to love it. But it's going to kind of hold you until the time is right for the promise. For the promise. Essentially, Paul's telling the Galatians, that with the coming of faith in Jesus, they were free to leave the orphanage. Listen to this, verses 25 and 27. Now that this faith has come, now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the guardian, right? We're free. So in Christ Jesus, you who are children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ Jesus, then you are Adam's, Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Now, this is, this is, kind of notice this this week. 
We tend to focus a whole lot on this passage right here. Um, we shouldn't be divided. You know, we're all equal in the sight of God. Yes, this is saying that, but it's actually saying something a little bit deeper. The, the unity that Paul's driving at here is the fact that we were all orphans. That's what he's driving at here. We're all equal in the fact that we were all orphans, whether you're a male or a female. And again, you notice on this, this list here, it's all haves and have-nots, people who have a home and people who don't. Have people have power, people who don't. Male, female, right? Free, slave. Each one of them, somebody has and somebody doesn't have. And Paul is saying, look, we're all orphans. Stop looking around and saying, oh, you know, he's more favored. Mom and dad like him more. No, that's, that's, that won't happen with God's family. I know it happens in our families. It won't happen with God's family. He loves all of us equally. And that is just truly, truly amazing. Again, we focus so much on that division part, but the fact of the matter is, the division is actually between all of us and God, right? That's the division that needs to be fixed, right? And then the best news of all, verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Read an article um, about wills. And there's two things that you can leave in a will, apparently. You can leave things to beneficiaries and you can leave things to your heirs. There's a big difference, right? The heirs are your blood relatives. And you leave some things to your heirs, they'll get taxed, but not as heavily. Beneficiaries in a will are not related to you by blood. And you give to beneficiaries, they're going to get taxed big time. And there's a whole slew of laws that make sure that blood relatives aren't taxed as heavily as beneficiaries because they're not blood relatives. Paul is saying that if we had to apply U.S. inheritance law, we would be sitting pretty, right? Because we're not beneficiaries. We're heirs. We're, we're considered, according to Christ, as blood relatives, right? And here's the amazing thing. The whole world, the whole world is, is beneficiaries of God's goodness, Right, prevenient grace, the grace that goes before. God's word tells us that, you know, when it rains, it rains on everybody. And when it's shining, sunny, it's shining, shining, sunny on everybody, right? Everybody gets the good stuff. That's the way God is, right? He's, he's just, he, you're all beneficiaries of his goodness. Creation was good. It was very, very good. But only, only those who accept his son as savior are heirs. Inherit everything. Not just beneficiaries, right? We're heirs according to the promise. Galatian reminds us that we were all once orphans, but we got to trade in our trash bags. And we got to leave the orphanage for the abundant life reserved for God's children who have been set free from the orphanage, right? That's us. But here's the fact, there are a lot of people stuck in that orphanage still. They're still far from God, and they feel it, right? They, they see churches as they drive down the street, and, and I'm sure they're thinking, hmm, what if I was one of them inside there, not out, outside? Would anything be different? We were all orphans. 
which means that when we see people who are just coming out of the orphanage, right, we can't treat them like stepsisters and stepbrothers, right, because they're not arriving with a whole lot. They're arriving with a whole lot of garbage. And we, the family of Christ, we are here to receive them, knowing that we, too, were once orphans. And then together, when we receive them, together we're all going to be heirs together. That's something to praise. That is amazing. Y'all bow your heads. Father God, thank you so much for Paul's letters. Just this idea that we are all in the same boat. Rather, haves and have-nots, they do not belong in the kingdom of God. Father, give us, give us courage. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your spirit of love so that when people come into this building, they feel like family. They feel like we are their long-lost family. Father, help us to get love right. Thank you for such a perfect example in your son who in the book of Hebrews says that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Father, sometimes I look around and I feel a little bit ashamed, but your son feels no shame. He loves us that much because he knows that what he sees currently isn't going to be what will be. Father, thank you for already seeing Christ in us. Father, give us the power and the courage and the sight to see Christ in our neighbors, knowing that they need to find a way home. And we have the map. Thank you, Father, for the map. And again, give us courage to share the map. In your son's name I pray.